Tonight I want to talk about bringing it all back home. And I thought about, um, I have lists and lists of practical suggestions and advice and all kinds of things. But you know, it's getting late, it's getting dark out, and I just think that I'm going to leave that part for Adrian, for the light of day. And just tell you some <laughs> and just tell you some stories tonight. <laughs> but they're stories that do relate to bringing it all back home. Uh, the first story takes place in Tang Dynasty, China. Now this was a time for the Dharma. It was a great flowering of the Dharma where Dharma teachers and Dharma events were really popular. It was like um, maybe athletes and sporting events today. You know, people would really flock to hear the Dharma. And, uh, so this was a time when people were, there was lots of practicing, and it's a story about a nun who had poured her whole heart into her practice without coming to really understand what she was doing or why. Uh, And so she really felt the need to leave the monastery and go for a period of solo retreat up into the mountain hermitage that belonged to the monastery. And she got permission from the abbess to go and to do that. So she set out and on her way up the mountain. She was going up a pretty steep trail and she met an old woman and she was coming down the other way. And if you've traveled in China, you, you see people just going up and down mountains carrying these impossibly huge loads of anything, wood, stuff on their backs with tremendous strength and ingenuity, how it all gets balanced and piled up there. And so this little old woman was carrying one of these huge piles of kindling on her back. And um, But of course, since this is a Zen story, she wasn't just any little old woman. She was a powerful and wise woman, disguised as just a little old (coughs) country woman. When she saw the nun, she asked her, where are you going? Now, this too is kind of a Zen question. Where are you going? And the nun told her she was headed up to the hermitage because she really needed to practice, because she hadn't really understood her true nature. And then she kind of stopped in the middle and said, what is Buddha nature? It was a genuine question. She was really longing to hear the truth. And she, so she just asked the question. She was longing to hear what the great theologian Howard Thurman called the sound of the genuine. So she just asked this little old lady, what is it? Maybe she had a hunch of who she really was. And the old woman reached up and took this whole big um, burden and just put it on the ground. And this being a Zen story, the nun was enlightened at that moment. (laughs) Now, each one of you has had a moment. this moment of freedom, you know this. And then the nun, newly awakened and grateful 
but not quite sure what to do, asked the old woman, so what do I do now? And the woman leaned over and picked up the huge pile of kindling and hoisted it back up onto her back and headed back down the mountain toward town. So now that our retreat is ending, are you going to pick it back up and pick up whatever you put down? And of course you will, at least some of it. But the you who picks it up has changed. Your life here has been saturated. It's been permeated with mindfulness, with metta. And, you know, even if you didn't want to, you would absorb it. But you all came here to absorb it. And so you've had insights. You've um, seen things that you hadn't seen before. Uh, And so when you pick it up again your whole intention will be different. Khalil Gibran, he said that work, our work, is love made visible. So I think when we pick it up again and go home, it's with that intention and that whatever we do with that intention does express our love of life and of each other, making our love visible. So this talk is about going home and how to trust what you've learned and and how to put it into practice, or really more, I think Adrian will talk more about that, but how to trust your ability to... I'm not setting you up, Adrian. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just giving you lots of material <laughs> for tomorrow. Um, to trust your ability to put it into practice as you get ready to just jump back into what behind the facade of the familiar is really the great unknown. You're pretty sure you know where you're going, most of you, when you leave here, I think. And, you know, you have that trust that when you get home, you'll find things somewhat the way you left them. Your couch will be probably where it was in the living room if you have one and your refrigerator you know it's probably in the same spot and your pets and your children and your all of it will still be there waiting for you but but really and truly do we know what is waiting for us and we can't possibly know it's a real leap of faith And it's a leap that we make all the time, but still, it's a much vaster and more mysterious situation that we're actually in. Again, it's hidden by our assumptions about the familiar, but it's actually deeply mysterious and unknown. So I'll tell you a story. Um, A few of you might have heard this story, but it's still good about uh, jumping into the unknown. So years ago, I was part of a big extended family celebration. And a bunch of us were having lunch together on top of a mountain. And it was a really high mountain overlooking a little lake, Um, actually a large lake, but a little piece of this large lake. And some people were hang gliding off the top of the mountain, and there was a little restaurant. We were having lunch outside and uh, kind of watching the hang gliders, and it looked sort of like fun. And and then my dad, who was alive at the time, made a dare. He said he would actually pay for, and he wasn't like that usually, but you could tell this had captured his imagination, but not enough to try it himself. He said he would pay for anyone in the family who wanted to try it to do that. It was kind of a dare. And 
you know, there was a silence after he made this generous offer. And I do not remember volunteering, but <laughs> I must have because I found myself strapped into a harness with a man I had never met <laughs> running toward the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and, you know, I would like to tell you that I did what I was planning to do, which was to leap gracefully into the air and soar into vast space. And my whole extended family would, of course, be watching, along with everyone else in the restaurant. And, um, but what happened instead was different. There was this kind of wooden jumping-off place where, <clears throat> and what you had to do, what we had to do, was start running really fast. And uh, you had to start running about, a, I don't know, maybe 100 feet, 100 yards, right next to the restaurant. And um, so we ran really fast toward the jumping-off place. And then my legs just stopped working about six feet before the edge. It was as though my, they saw the abyss before my mind did. And they just went on strike. I've never experienced it. They gave out and they just, during the last few steps, they just dragged uselessly. They were just dragging uselessly on the ground. And Fortunately, the glider had already caught the wind by then, and we took off. And I will never forget the horror of that first moment, just hanging there without the ground, just hanging in huge space past the edge of the mountain, and I watched just paralyzed with terror while all the bushes and rocks and dirt and land just receded inexorably away from us. And I was hanging on to the only solid things there were, which were these little harness wires and the man. And, <laughs> and you know, amazingly, out of somewhere, mindfulness appeared. It was like I... I think in a split second, you know, what mindful awareness gives us is not necessarily happy outcomes, living happily ever after, I am sorry to say, but it gives us choices. And I think in a split second, the choice became clear. Either I could be terror-stricken and cling to the illusion of safety because actually those harness wires and the man were in space hanging and gliding there, you know, with me. And, um, or I could relax and open to what was happening and enjoy the ride. Because after all, this was an opportunity that might never come again. <laughs> and in fact, it never has. So, um, it was a really beautiful day. And, you know, blue sky, beautiful, be far below us, far, far below us. I could see the birds flying high over the lake. And the vastness of the air and of the space below and above and all around, there was really finally just soaring, just quietly flying. The I, me, my humbled into silence. And relaxing and opening and resting in that great vast open space of mind, of sky, of lake, of mountain, gliding and just slowly falling through the arms of the cosmos like you've all done during this retreat, following the invisible trajectory of your practice. So I did experience some peaceful times between the terror of the beginning of the journey and the takeoff 
and then the gradually arising dread of landing <laughs> of the end of the ride. And I tried to keep my attention on the beauty of the moment and the amazement of flying and um, just not really listen to the mind's rising questions about how fast I'd have to run when we touched the ground so that my legs and ankles wouldn't break. And in fact, we just floated quite gently down. And so take heart, because in spite of any fears you may have about your own landing, chances are the feet and legs will work fine again when they touch the ground. So bringing it home, it's, it's just good to remember that it's not the experiences you've had here that are important, actually. Although you may, and you probably won't forget them, but it's learning how to meet experience and how to be with it. So you're taking home tools, not just experiences. And I mean, the experiences are wonderful, but they do become memories. Whereas the tools of mindfulness and metta are really um, skills that you can use to navigate whatever turbulent change you encounter. And they're skills that will serve you in ways that you cannot even possibly know right this minute. And it's good to remember, too, that this way of being, of being present with experience that you've been practicing here, is completely trustworthy. And it's always available. It will never abandon you. It's as immediately accessible as the breath, as feeling the body, a sound, whatever brings you here now. Here you have a refuge. We have the Dharma as our refuge. And it's maybe not so easy to get this, but it's actually very simple. And I think the story that best embodies the simplicity of this is a story about Mahagosananda, whom Jack talked about last night, the great Cambodian monk. And, oh, I could tell you a whole Dharma talk story of travels with Mahagosananda. But on this one trip that I'll tell you about, it was a pilgrimage that we were on together. He was traveling uh, with a group of us um, with his friend, uh, a teacher of mine, Korean Zen master named Desan Sanim. And it was a pilgrimage to the great Zen temples of Korea. And along with Korean monastic dignitaries and some Western teachers, Mahagosananda was invited to give a Dharma talk. And this talk was attended by hundreds and hundreds of monastics and some of us lay people. He stood up in his simple Theravadan robes and he said, in the language of the country that colonized his, je suis tué, il est, elle est, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont, elles sont. He slowly, quietly conjugated the verb être, the verb to be in French. He stood at the podium, and that's what he said. I am. You are. He is. She is. We are. They are. So simple and so completely true. He gave his talk without notes. <laughs> he, I mean, they all did. It was a Zen setting, but it was Mahagosananda who radiated such metta 
such compassion. He transmitted such a strong and unmistakable wave of wisdom and compassion. It, it was such a powerful transmission, we just sat and wept. And that's all he said. Just tears of recognition. You know these tears when you hear the truth and you feel that kind of metta and compassion and just such unmistakable tenderness. They were tears of uh, being touched and moved by his infinite love and tenderness. He hardly said anything up in front of that illustrious assembly. And yet, and yet, he just broke our hearts wide open. And this took place in 1987, before the genocide in Cambodia had actually ended. And he could stand there and hold both truths, the truth of the open field of being where we simply are and the truth of his work in the refugee camps with survivors of the killing fields where he lost 17 of his immediate family members, all his brothers and sisters. None of this went through our heads at the time. It didn't have to. The words were not necessary. And the majority of the people there couldn't even understand them. But it didn't matter. His presence standing there so soft so humble, so quiet, said it all. Just that metta and that kindness of pure being that holds it all. Mahagosananda found a place of refuge in his own heart after all of that. And he was able to extend that refuge to all of us in that moment. And, you know, a refuge is a place where we go to be safe, to be free from fear and suffering. And actually, it's a path. It's a way, it's an invisible trajectory. I mean, we're looking, too, for a place of refuge where we can live in a way that will free us from suffering of a home or a familiar place or a country or an addiction or a relationship from which we have to flee for our lives and become refugees. I remember a hard time in my life, and most of you have probably had hard times of being down on your luck. And it was a time when my marriage was really, really uh, very sad. And it felt like just being in the shadows together, huddled on some like narrow, cold ledge, overlooking, again, an abyss. And I could see way down below our ledge a little rope bridge, kind of narrow and scary and swinging in the wind. And on the other side, there was sunshine and friendly people being supportive of each other and cheering each other on. And I really wanted to cross that bridge. (coughs) But I couldn't bring myself to leave somebody I loved who was in trouble until I almost slipped and fell off that ledge. And uh, only then did I find the courage to save the one life I could save then, which was my own, and slowly walk that broken heart across the great unknown into the sunlight. So what's most essential is that we find the courage to leave the familiar places of suffering and go for refuge, to set out and walk this path of compassionate awareness and loving presence, this path of dharma. And it's not a path to somewhere else. 
you know this. It's a path to here. Uh, and you've all walked this path with great sincerity during this retreat, and you know how to do this. So tonight I want to tell you also about what the Buddha taught his heart disciple, Ananda. Right before he died, before the Buddha died, about how to keep this practice alive. And he was concerned with transmitting teachings about how to keep the practice alive after he passed away. And our retreat, of course, is passing away. So what the Buddha taught Ananda about that, I think, can really help us practice when we leave this place of refuge, this incredibly protected place. The first three, he taught six things. He said these are the six qualities that once they're practiced, of course, that's always the drawback with this. You do have to, it doesn't really work unless you do it. The six qualities that once they're practiced create love and respect and lead to helpfulness, harmony, and unity. So the first three are really ways to practice relational mindfulness, mindfulness in relationship, and to enlist our body, speech, and mind to free the heart. The first one he called bodily acts of metta. I love this. And he said, do them in public and in private. I will leave to your imagination what private bodily acts of metta might look like. (laughs) But we can think about, um, like here's a public act of metta. I went in to get my laundry um, last, actually this morning, and it was all folded. So somebody had taken it, I know it was Sharon, had taken it out of the dryer and folded it so nicely. And so instead of finding it you know, in a jumble on top of the dryer, it was folded. And it was a simple act of kindness. But it made a difference. Another bodily act of loving kindness in the world um, that I'll tell you about. Sister Helen Préjean is the one who, whose story was told in the movie Dead Man Walking. And her bodily act of metta is to walk with the men who are condemned to death. And um, she says... Making love present in the world and letting love be my life is what really counts now. And especially being with the people who are most excluded, death row inmates and their families. And she says, the world love is so bandied about today, but love is the most powerful energy in the world. It's so important to unleash it to be present to the dignity of the forgotten, to recognize the beauty of the scarred and maimed, draws forth their goodness and self-respect in a way that nothing else can do. And then she goes on. um, Actually, the person who's interviewing her in this article asks her, what sustains you in the face of such violence and despair? How do you keep from getting pulled down by it? And this is a question that we all will ask ourselves, and especially leaving this Buddha field, you know, this place where you can leave your purse out or you don't have to lock anything. And, you know, it's so protected here. And then we go back out, some of us, into big cities where it's not like that at all. How do you keep from getting pulled down by it? And she says, it goes back to the ability to be present with people. When I accompany these inmates to their death, I leave myself, even my fear, behind. I'm totally focused on them. 
It's the same thing when I sit with the victims' families. I'm not thinking about myself at all. And she goes on to say, Ego becomes dominant when your personal agenda is small. You become self-conscious and competitive because it's what you think you need to do in order to survive. When your little boat gets caught up on a wave that's bigger than you are, ego drops away. Bodily acts of loving-kindness. Then verbal acts of loving-kindness. As you begin talking, I'm sure you've noticed verbal acts of loving-kindness when somebody has voiced their positive thoughts or feelings or appreciation for you, when you've voiced your gratitude or appreciation for others. Making amends to somebody can be a verbal act of metta. Offering metta phrases. An example of verbal act of metta One day I was sitting in the hospital intensive care unit where my father actually lay dying. And anybody who was in this waiting room, the person they were waiting for was in really rough shape because it was a um, surgical and trauma ICU and it was only for people who were really, really, um, you know, kind of teetering between life and death. And... uh, So my mother left the room, probably go get something, and I was left in the room with these ladies, um, church ladies, and they were there to support uh, a sister. And they, uh, as if they had been waiting for us to be left alone, the minute my mother walked out, they leaned toward me and they asked if I wanted to pray and if I wanted them to pray for my father. And I said, yes, yes, thank you. I would like that. And uh, I didn't know. I thought they would then, you know, launch into their prayers. But instead, they took my hand and we all kneeled down on the linoleum floor of this hospital waiting room. And we held hands. And then they just began. And they just thanked and praised God the whole time. They didn't ask for anything. They just kept saying thank you. They expressed their gratitude. They thanked God for holding Howard Goodman in his arms. And it was just one long hallelujah. And it was such boundless, generous metta. They taught me so much about prayer, uh, and I'll always be grateful to them. And then the Buddha talked about mental acts of loving-kindness. And this could be as simple as remembering to offer metta to yourself and to others as you emerge from retreat to really hold yourself in that care and tenderness as you leave here. And it could be by making connections with others here before you leave, uh, by healing relationships when you get home, by offering metta to your old fears and griefs and withheld forgivenesses and you know all the unfinished business of the heart that may need attention. And this is a story about a mental act of loving-kindness, of metta. It's a story about the journalist Marianne Pearl, whose husband, Danny Pearl, was uh, killed in Pakistan after being captured by terrorists. And uh, Marianne Pearl was four months pregnant at that time. And um, so while they were searching for her husband... They were both, they both did Buddhist practice, and so she was doing a lot of chanting during that time. And she said, this was an act of resistance. 
it was obvious to me that the terrorists were trying to instill fear. And I knew right away what to do, which was to chant so I wouldn't be paralyzed. And a few days later, his captors began sending all these images of him and then eventually of his really grisly execution. And she um, moved to New York and gave birth to their son and wrote a book. And here's what she said. By writing about my faith, courage, practice, and resistance, I'm fighting the war on terror. Terror is so powerful that you can lose all your capacity even to react. As a victim of terror, you have the opportunity, though, to live up to your values. Buddhism was a very solid ground on which I was walking. My own practice, one that has guided me for over 18 years, gave me insight into our terrible situation insight into the motives of the terrorists and insight into the real and present risk of death. If nations respond to terrorism the way I have, we will win. So bodily, verbal, mental acts of loving kindness. The fourth is about practicing generosity, the generosity of kindness and being responsible for our path and being kind as we walk it. I mean, by now you know everyone suffers. So it's a kindness to, and it's a generosity to forgive ourselves for our mistakes and shortcomings. And the Buddha said, if you knew what I know about the power of giving, you wouldn't even eat one meal without sharing it. And I often tell about them in the majority people. Um, one of my almost son-in-laws, I have a son-in-law, but this was an almost son-in-law, um, <laughs> was part Maori uh, from New Zealand. And he said that, you know, in that culture, I mean, he, in the indigenous culture, which was not anymore what he lived in, but um, it's considered completely wrong to eat anything alone. It's not done. And it's, it would be almost like obscene to do it. So if you have a sandwich and you are hungry and it's lunchtime and there's nobody around, you have to find somebody. You might you know, go into a store and find somebody to share your sandwich with. Um, and so that's generosity. Uh, I just realized the time, I'm sorry. Um, and then the fifth one is, uh, the Buddha called it possessing in common those virtues that are unbroken. He said, at my passing, you'll have the Dharma and you'll have the precepts. And that's what that was his legacy, what he bequeathed to us. Uh, the precepts to guide us, not to try and control us, but to protect us as a way of um, strengthening and sustaining our refuge in clear minds and hearts. And these, uh, the gift of generosity, of dana, is also a gift of fearlessness that we don't have to be anybody that anyone has to be afraid of, and that we don't have to be afraid of our own minds. This might be one of the most powerful lessons of the week, that you don't have to be afraid of your own mind. So we're devoted to this, to practicing the precepts, devoted to the Dharma, devoted to ourselves as worthy of these teachings, and trusting our capacity to live them. And this quality of devotion is likened in the teachings to having a cave that faces south. Now, you don't want a cave that faces north. Do you know why? Why don't you want a cave that faces north? like that ledge I was perched on for a while. It's really cold and dark. 
But I do want to say that um, that troubled husband eventually found his way back to a cave that faces south, too. So our ordinary um, faith or devotion is like having this cave that faces south. The light, the sun, the warmth of the blessings of the lineage can just flow into our cave. And the cave, you know, sometimes we do find ourselves in a north-facing cave and we're unhappy and isolated and completely encased and shrink-wrapped in hindrances and, um, and very identified with them. And it's a chilly place. But the cave that's facing south, and again, it's about choices. We can go there and choose it. Um, this sun of compassionate awareness, it's always there for us. It's always shining. I mean, even now, it's dark out, you know, and, but we don't worry that the sun is gone and that it's not going to come up in the morning. And it's there, and we trust it. In the 70s, we had an energy crisis. Some of you were just being born, but some of us were already having an energy crisis. And uh, there were these solar power bumper stickers that said, free fuel deliveries daily. And I would look at that bumper sticker, free fuel deliveries daily, and I would think, yes, that's like the Dharma. That's like awareness. That's, you know, even when you leave here and you can't ever really leave here, there are free fuel deliveries daily. (laughs) So, bodily acts of kindness, verbal acts of metta, um, just our whole mental body, speech, and mind, mental acts of metta, generosity, precepts. And the last thing that the Buddha wanted us, the last quality, um, was a noble view of life that is wise and whole, along with uh, one's companions on the path. So, I just would like to give a few of his teachings on spiritual friendship and then end our talk. He said, he gave a verse, uh, he gave a lot of teachings on how to be a good friend and how to be spiritual friends to each other and how to really create and strengthen that in our lives and the importance of doing that. Um, It's a whole Dharma talk in and of itself, but there's one verse that I really love and I want to read to you. The Buddha says, Keep the company of noble friends who live a pure life and are not lethargic. (laughs) I love that. I don't know if they're lethargic, what? Maybe don't return their phone calls or, you know, don't answer their email. I'm not sure, but um, I think what this means is the people who have the energy to do something with their lives and to care enough to be of service to others. And in the Thai forest tradition of Achan Cha, Jack's teacher, there's another understanding of spiritual friendship, Kalyanamita, which actually means friendship with the lovely. And it means, you know, what's most lovely? What is the most lovely thing? Well, it's not really a thing at all. It's the core of our being, our hearts. It's the goodness and wisdom that is inherent in each one of us. This is a quote from um, one of Will's grandfathers, Howard Zinn. And... It's just, I have to just, it's such a joy to have Will here. He's my godson, and I just can't believe we wound up here together somehow. But here we are. So, 
This is a quote from Howard Zinn. Uh, Human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there's so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. The future is an infinite succession of presence, and to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. So the intention to live as human beings, as we know human beings can live, it's an act of love. And it's also an act of resistance to all that is not of love. So I'd like to end with a story about my teacher, my heart Zen teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, uh, about when she was passing away. And this story is about something that happened, what was happening the night before she died. Of course, your teachers aren't dying, but we won't be with you every day in the same way. And so uh, you'll have the Dharma, you'll have the precepts. And let me tell you about what Maureen left us with. So at that time, she was only partly conscious, and she was partly sleeping, and then she would surface. And it was quiet, completely quiet in her room. It was late at night, except for you know, hospital sounds. And when she would hear a sound, she would rouse herself and say, thank you. So she was saying thank you to experience as it awakened her. And then she would just drop off to sleep again. And in the absence of struggle, in the peaceful silence, as she completely surrendered to her dying, there was no one enlightened. No, the I, the you, the her can't become enlightened. There was just the clicking of the heavy door. And thank you the squeak of rubber-soled shoes on the floor. Thank you. A doctor being paged over the loudspeaker. Thank you. The groan of a patient in pain. Thank you. Thank you, she murmured. Just like the ladies who were praying for my dad, praising and celebrating life as he died. She just left everything to be as it is, just as it is. And while she was in the hospital those last three days, we were sitting Sashin, which is an intensive silent retreat, just like this. And she sent a message to her students knowing that we were sitting as she lay dying. And she said, even as she was at the bottom of her life, she said simply, as we say to you, you know what to do. Continue your practice. The Zen poet 
and songwriter Leonard Cohen said it so well. And even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Yeah, let's do it together one more. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just sit for a minute. So guess what we'll hear more about tonight? Another taste, another approach to the same topic is the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths. So a Zen master once said, enlightenment is the ability to accept reality as it is. So just think about that for a moment. What can that possibly mean? What would it possibly mean? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.